preaching and the hearing of his word. Our Father, our God, Christ our Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit, as we open your word uh, together, as we desire to submit ourselves to the very word of Christ, will you grant to us the grace of hearing and believing that which you proclaim to us? Father, will you give to us all that we need as, as a body of Christ to be sufficient in Christ for the purposes, the mission which he's given to his church? We pray that uh, more and more it will be the desire of this congregation to see Christ exalted as his word is proclaimed, as the people of God are conformed more and more to his image, as we have opportunity to assist in the labors of advancing the cause of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, in other places, through the planting of churches, through the establishment of of missionaries in foreign lands. Uh, We pray that you will instruct us through your word that we can think rightly about those whom you have called and gifted uh, for those labors and how each of us can assist and support and encourage uh, that work. Uh, grant us a unity of mind and heart as we consider these things together. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Aha. I was unplugged. There we go. Speaking of un- <laughs> It's on now, isn't it? Here. Let me turn with you in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I mentioned a few weeks ago, as we were uh, preparing and leading up to the ordination of a deacon, I had planned to preach last Lord's Day on the diaconate and, and give a charge to the congregation and to our new deacon elect. And, and that led to thinking about the office of deacon and thinking, well, we need to, we need to spend some time here working through the scriptures with respect to not only deacons, but officers in general. So this has turned into a, a sort of a mini-series. Uh, last three weeks, we've spent looking at the office of deacon. Over the next four or five weeks, I think it's going to be, we'll be looking at the office of el- overseer, elder, pastor, bishop. Those are all interchangeable terms that describe the same office. We're going to spend our time today primarily in just the first verse of of the third chapter of First Timothy. I'm going to back up and read, though, the second chapter of First Timothy, because it's important. We, we know that those chapter headings that we have, the chapter numbers, the, the headings that we find in our Bible, none of those are originally there. This was a unified epistle, not even a particularly long one, that Paul sent to a young man named Timothy laboring in Ephesus, a church that Paul had planted. The title of today's sermon is Desiring a Good Work. And Paul here lays out uh, qualifications for pastors. And he's going to look at this over kind of a broad, sweeping thought process. 
But we need to understand that when he says in chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, he's not changing the subject. He's not starting something new. He's continuing a line of thought that we need to pick up and and understand where he's coming from and, and, and where he's going. I'm going to look at, over the next three or four weeks, the qualifications of pastors, elders, under four general headings. And there's some alliteration here, so it's easier to remember. Calling, character, competence, and confession. And I think as we distill the qualifications given to us, particularly in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, but also as we look at, at the inferences that we find in places like Acts chapter 20, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 to 5, there are a number of things that we draw out, and we can synthesize all of that and put these under four broad headings. By calling, we're going to look at the ne- today and possibly next week too. I'm not sure how far I will get, full disclosure today. We're going to get calling. What does it mean to be called of God to serve as a minister of the gospel? What does that calling look like? What's the church's role in that calling? What is a man's internal desire? What role does that play? And then after that, we'll spend, I think, a sermon looking at character and competence. And character, I think, is self-explanatory. Uh, what, what is a man's reputation? What are, has, has this calling manifested itself in outward graces, outward sanctification, inward and outward sanctification, that is observable to the church body? Not a degree of perfection, because in like manner, we saw with deacons, if the standard were perfection, we wouldn't have any deacons. If the standard were perfection in these things, we wouldn't have any pastors. We would have one risen and exalted pastor, shepherd, and that would be it. No human being could follow along behind him. But then also competence. Competence means his skills, his gifts. There are defined for us in the scriptures certain abilities that a man needs to possess in order to shepherd God's people. And then in the last place, just a brief definition, you'll see the word confession. And of course, we usually use that word to signify something that we are, we've done wrong, we've sinned, and we confess that. We try to train our children you know, to confess that they've lied or confess that they broke something or confess that they've done something wrong. And that is, that is a correct usage of the word, but confess simply means to agree with. So when we confess our sin, we are agreeing with God that we have violated his law, that we have fallen short. So for when we think about confession, it means I agree or I believe. So a man's confession here in this context is what does he believe? What, is, what are the doctrines? What is the content of the gospel that he believes, understands, and is able to proclaim? So that gives you four, you know, if these are kind of pegs to hang hats or coats on over the next several weeks, calling, character, competence, and confession. As I'm going to read now in chapter 2 of Timothy. And I want to just, before I do, I want you to notice something here. And I'm not going to expand upon this a lot or elaborate on it. But we see a phrase in the text that's, that's critically important, but also open to some confusion. In chapter 2 of, second, of 1 Timothy, It says that God desires all men to be saved. Well, the Bible speaks about God's desire, God's will, in two general ways. 
One is his will or his desire of decree. Whatever God has decreed will inevitably, infallibly, immutably come to pass, without exception, without fail. But we also speak of God's will of desire. And this is an honest desire. This is a true desire. This is a sincere desire of God, but not necessarily something he has decreed. So, for example, God desires that every man, every woman, every child follow the Ten Commandments perfectly. But who does that? None. Not one. None is righteous, not even one. Only the Lord Jesus Christ ever kept the law perfectly. And some will not even acknowledge that the law is binding, that the law is something for them to even attempt to do. So even the most sincere godly believer will look at the law and say, as Paul did, it is good, the law is holy, and I can't obey it entirely. I fail every day with it. Others will shake their fists and say, I will not be bound by such a law. But God still yet desires man to live according to his righteous standard. So we're going to see, when you, when you see this phrase, God desires men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It is a true desire, but that is not his necessarily his decree for all men. He's not, this is not universalism. He's not decreed that all men will come to be saved. So here, this is the word of God in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and, who, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. <clears throat> for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first in Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. We'll look uh, next time at the specific qualifications that Paul lists in verses 2 and following. But the first qualification, if you will, the first prerequisite in order to become a minister of the gospel, in order to be a pastor in the church of Jesus Christ, is this idea of calling. This idea of calling. But note in the first place that Paul is not dis. dis He's not starting a new subject. He has articulated plainly that God has a desire for men to be saved. 
God has a desire to see men reconciled, men and women and boys and girls reconciled to himself. And he says, first of all, we pray. First of all, we pray. And we pray, Paul says in in chapter 2, we pray for very specific things. We pray that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And we do this by means of praying for those in civil authority over us. But that's not the end in itself. Sometimes we want to stop there and say, well, this is, we want selfishly to pray that the government will just leave us alone. That's not a bad prayer, but it's not a sufficient one. We want the government to leave us alone, but for what reason? So that the gospel of Jesus Christ can go forth unhindered, unmolested, unaccosted by those in civil authority. And he says, this is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Then he speaks of this one mediator who must be proclaimed, this one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who has to be offered up, who has to be presented and declared to sinful human beings in order that they might be reconciled to God, because that's God's desire. So you see, then he says that, that in the church of Christ, in the body of Christ, that the men among the congregation ought to lead the congregation in worship, ought to lead in praying, lifting up holy hands, and that the women have their own role to join in those prayers submissively, quietly, that both men and women should reflect that, their respective roles, even in their outward demeanor, even, even down to the clothes that we wear, should honor Christ. And he's still thinking in terms of this desire of God for all men to be saved. And in God's wisdom, in God's infinite decree, his eternal decree, he has designed his church to be an embassy. You know, if you were to walk into an embassy, in, you can go down downtown Houston, there are several foreign embassies. You can go to other countries and visit the U.S. embassy. And you walk in and you expect people to be adorned a certain way. If you walked into a U.S. embassy and you saw people adorned in the customary garb of another country, it would not fit, would it? You expect them probably to have on some sort of uniform or some sort of identifying feature that says they're Americans. They represent the American government. In a similar way, when someone walks into this embassy, a Gentile, a foreigner to the covenants of Christ, walks in, does he see in the demeanor of God's people, in our deportment, even in the way that we dress, and this is not to put legalistic standards, this is just a, it's, it's a, it's a broad idea that says there ought to be a consistency. In everything about us, because God has desired and he has expressed and declared his desire to see men reconciled to him. And the church of Jesus Christ is the primary place where the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, is proclaimed. So again, we get to chapter 3. He's not changing the subject. The appointment, the calling of pastors is a necessary component in God fulfilling his desire to see men saved. There's there's a line of argument here. So we don't pop down in chapter 3, verse 1, and start as if Paul's starting a brand new subject. He's continuing a train of thought that says there is an instrumentality. We get to chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. He's commanding Timothy. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. We get to the end of that chapter. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, 
you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, that I'll set aside for another sermon to unpack that. But there's an instrumentality. Paul says in the ministry of a pastor within a local church and all the saints cooperating and supporting that, there's an instrumentality by which men and women are justified, called out of darkness into light, adopted as God's own son, sanctified in the truth, and preserved all the way up to the state of glory. This begins with respect to pastors and elders with a call. And you all heard the phrase, you've heard somebody say it, maybe you've even thought it yourself, God has called me to the ministry. Well, that that requires some explanation, doesn't it? That requires some some fleshing out. What does one mean by that? What what does this look like? So we need to consider the calling in two ways. So this is a a two-point sermon. And I think today it's going to be a one-point sermon with a to-be-continued. Let's think about, first of all, there's an internal calling, and then there's also an external calling. With respect to an internal calling, look what Paul says. The saying is trustworthy. And Paul, this is a common expression of Paul. This saying is trustworthy. And what he's saying is, this is, this is, this is something we ought to believe. This is something we ought to grab hold of as, as necessary and profitable for us to believe. So as a church of Jesus Christ, this is a trustworthy saying. This is something that, that will be beneficial to us if we will understand it and seek to put it into practice. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires, the ESV says, a noble task. It's probably better translated, a good work. There are two key verbs here that we need to think about, aspire and desire. And while those are somewhat synonymous, Paul repeats them for the sake of emphasis, but also he makes a slight differentiation. But let's think about these things. First of all, What is the object of this desire? Paul speaks of a man that that, that in some sense, in some way, is called into this office, this task, this responsibility of being an overseer, a shepherd, an elder, a bishop in the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that certain men within the body of Christ, we saw in chapter 2 that All of the male members of the church were to participate in some way in praying and helping in the worship of God's people. But of those, there are certain men called in a particular way. But called to what? What is the directed object of the desire? Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. And those are parallel statements. Office of overseer and good work. We need to understand those as, as, as joined at the hip, if you will. This idea of a noble task, uh, Paul uses the term overseer. Uh, in the Greek, there are three different words that describe the office of pastor or the function of pastor, and they're all interchangeable. Uh, this is not something where we have, I know in some denominations there is a minister or a pastor, and then there are elders. There's a separate office. Uh, I'm not going to quarrel a whole lot with that. Uh, Many of our good Presbyterian brothers have that sort of structure and that mindset. Uh, I think from the scriptures it's pretty plain that 
those words refer interchangeably to the same office. There's no distinction between a pastor and an elder, an overseer. Those are all synonymous. So during the sermon, if you hear me say pastor, you hear me say elder, I'm not making a distinction. They're exactly the same. And Paul says that anyone who comes to the point of desiring this office, Paul says they desire a good work. But he doesn't say they desire a noble, exalted position. They desire a good work. They desire a labor. They desire a a fruitfulness with the task that God has given to them. Royal here does not mean a pretentious or ambitious or regal or royal. It means good, honorable, worthy, profitable, or excellent. And Paul here speaks of a man finding in his own soul a desire for such a work. A desire to, to not only to teach and preach and labor in such a task, but also to shepherd God's people. To pastor, uh, to, to correct, to exhort, to encourage, to pray for. He just speaks here of a man desiring this work. What, is, what does that look like? And, and, and often we speak in terms of, of, of a calling, we say that a man has been called to the ministry, but what does that mean to, to desire this work? Uh, it means that someone has, looks, has a, a sober understanding. It's, it's always limited, but it's a sober understanding of what's involved in pastoral ministry. The kinds of sacrifices upon, upon his time, the kinds of, of prayer, the kinds of, of weaknesses in himself that will be exposed. Uh, Gene and I have had the conversation a couple different times, probably several times, as we've been to a wedding. And you've all had, seen this. You, you, there's this young couple, and they're standing there at the altar. They're making their vows, and it's all smiles. It is joyful, and it's, it is right. They ought to celebrate. It's a good thing. And the people that have been married 20, 30, 40 years can pull out of the parking lot and think to themselves, they have no idea what's coming. Right? You marry people, amen, right? You, you know that they are about to be provoked in ways that they did not ever imagine. Their own sinful condition, the sins of their spouse that they can't even imagine yet, and they're going to be sanctified, or, the, or the, they're going to have needs of sanctification revealed to them through marriage. Well, we've had the conversation several times as I've, we've pulled away from ordination ceremonies with the exact same thought. It's a joyful time, and it should be. And yet there's a sense in which no one really knows in a marriage what they're getting into. No one really knows, being ordained to the pastoral ministry, what you're really getting into. But yet, just as a young man has this desire to marry this particular woman, as a woman has a desire to marry this particular man, it's a real desire. It's a desire that will be more fully informed as the years go on, but it's a bona fide, genuine desire. And here, too, a man must have this desire. It must be a sober kind of desire. There's a side question, I think, that that comes up later on in the epistle. In chapter 5, Paul will deal with this sort of side issue. But does this calling, someone who aspires to the office of overseer, who begins to earnestly desire this kind of work, does this necessarily mean that a man then must leave his present vocation 
and serve the church full time? And the answer is no. Uh, Paul answers this in chapter 5 of of 1 Timothy. Some will remain in their ordinary vocations. They will continue to do the things that they've always done, and yet also they will serve the church in this particular capacity, in teaching and shepherding and preaching and, and ministering to God's people. Many will serve faithfully as elders in Christ's church and remain in their other vocations. And in the scriptures, and throughout church history as well, uh, we see both full-time pastors, those who have been able to devote themselves fully to the ministry of the word and prayer, and others who continue in other labors alongside their ministry in the church of God. So we think about, this is the, this is the object of that desire. What, is, what does someone desire? Are they simply desiring the, the, the prestige or the public acknowledgement of holding office in the church of Jesus Christ? Or are they simply desiring that sort of of recognition and notoriety? Or is this a man who says, no, I, I, I desire the hard work. I desire the obscurity. I, I desire the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that will accompany that sometimes. And I desire that. Um, just as, and again, the analogy, I think, is, is fitting as long as we don't press it too hard, the analogy of marriage. I desire to get married, knowing full well that not only will my joys be magnified, but my sorrows can be doubled as well. But I desire that nonetheless because it's a good thing. It's a blessed thing. But we also need to think about the internal call in this way. What's the source What's the source of this internal desire? See, what Paul speaks of, when we desire something, that that comes from within. Sometimes it's influenced by outside factors, certainly. But there's a desire within us for sometimes lawful things, sometimes unlawful things, but there's a desire within us. And, And Paul speaks of this. If there's a man who finds in himself an internal desire, a growing desire, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to love and shepherd his people, where does that desire come from? Because Paul presupposes it's not a natural desire. It's not a natural affection. See, look back at at chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And then down in verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So by Paul's testimony, where did his calling come from? the Lord Jesus Christ. Where did Timothy's calling come from? It wasn't from Paul. It wasn't even his faithful mother and grandmother. It was from the Lord himself. And that's why he says, this was accompanied by prophecies about you, previously made about you, that by them, by these promises, by these prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. In Acts chapter 20, This would be years later, but the elders at this very same church, which means 
Timothy had taken the instruction of Paul, put it into practice, and the church had called and appointed elders. Because years later, as Paul is making his final approach to Jerusalem, he couldn't even go into Ephesus. The, the, the situation was so hot, so volatile, that he met the elders from Ephesus. This is recorded for us in Acts chapter 20 at sort of the next town over, a place called Miletus. And he met on the beach. And it was a tearful farewell. Tearful farewell. They literally wrapped their arms and hugged Paul's neck. They wept over him because they knew this would be the last time they would see him face to face. And in that passage, Paul says to those elders, pay careful attention to yourselves, this is verse 28, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. See, Paul understood that it wasn't only apostles who were called by Christ. It wasn't only these special uh, evangelists under the immediate instruction of an apostle like Timothy, but every elder in every place and at every time is called by God himself. In 1 Peter 5, Peter deals with this same passage, or same same concept, that it is is Christ himself who calls men into this ministry. I'll look at that that text here in a moment in more detail. You can go ahead and turn, if you want to, to 1 Peter 5. We'll draw out a couple of, of conclusions there. So we see this pattern in both the Old and the New Testaments, don't we? Under the Old Testament, how were prophets called? Were they self-appointed? Did, did, the, did the people just choose their own prophets? No, God called the prophets. God called those who would speak on his behalf. And under the New Covenant, the same is true. So we see this pattern there. God alone appoints his messengers. You know, in fact, we see in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we see a very strong condemnation against men who would deign, who would dare to speak for God when he had not spoken. But he also rebuked the people of God for listening to such men. To take one who had not been appointed, who had not been called by God to such a task, those who listened to them were also rebuked. It is God who is the source of any and every legitimate call to gospel ministry. So God is the source of of this inward call. But what's what's the result? What's the effect of this inward call? What, what does the call produce? Well, we'll spend the next few weeks looking at that. It produces an external call, first of all. And the church has to participate and recognize those gifts and graces. It produces the character, the gifts, the graces. It produces the, the right believing necessary for a man to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's produced in them. Now, let's think about some potential uh, errors with respect to this internal call. Because admittedly, isn't this somewhat subjective? I mean, isn't this part of the problem with how this idea of an inward call is used? I'm called to the ministry. God called me. Nobody can argue with me about that. No one can deny it because God has said it. I was talking with uh, another pastor in another city um, several months ago, and they had uh, a young man in their congregation who said, I know I'm called to the ministry. And they were working with him, the other pastors were working with him on some, they weren't saying 
explicitly that, no, we don't see that. They're saying there are some character issues here that need to be addressed. And his argument was, God has called me. My wife agrees. You can't argue with that. What do you do pastorally with that? If you don't have, if, if all you've looked at is this internal subjective call, then you're not fully equipped. You're not fully furnished as a church to deal with that kind of objection. With this desire, the other thing that we can see is there are all kinds of motives that might persuade even an honest, godly man to think, I should be doing this, I should be preaching, I should be serving in this way, when it's not really a God-given desire. I mentioned 1 Peter 5. I want you to turn with me there, and let's think about some things that Peter mentions. Uh, Peter is not a pragmatist in any way, shape, or form, but he is immensely practical. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, let's, let's use some sanctified reading between the lines here with Peter's exhortation. He says, first of all, I exhort you as a fellow elder. Paul, he doesn't say, I'm exhorting you as an apostle, ranking above you. He said, I'm, I'm among you. I'm one of the elders here. And I exhort you to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, to lead them well. Exercising oversight. Listen to this next phrase, not under compulsion. Well, that reveals to us a potential a potential misunderstanding of this internal call, doesn't it? Someone might feel compelling to be to serve as a pastor and elder out of guilt. Thinking, I ought to be doing this. There is a real possibility, particularly with a godly man with a tender conscience, a man who is eager to serve, a man who loves his Lord, who loves his church, and is willing to do anything. And he looks at his church and says, there's a need here, and I feel guilty that that's not being met. You know, there are some kinds of people who can see a hundred needs and never even, it just never comes to their radar. They're either oblivious or just don't have that, whatever the thing is in them that says, I think that's my responsibility. But there are others who err on the other side who think everything is their responsibility. And this is from my takes one to no one files, right? That you look at a problem and you say, well, not just somebody should fix that. It's like, maybe I'm responsible to address that problem. I once served with a man who was of such a mind. And I sat down with him face to face, and we looked at 1 Peter 5. And it says to serve, exercising oversight, shepherding God's people, not under compulsion, but willingly. And I looked at him, I said, brother, is this you? Do you feel compelled? Are you doing this because you feel guilty? And he said, yes, I do. And he resigned. And it was the right thing to do. 
He was not a wicked man. He was not an ungodly man. But he was, he was serving in an office for which he was not really furnished and for which he did not really have the desire to do it. He was willing because no one else was doing it. But it wasn't really an honest desire. Look what else he says. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. King James says, not for filthy lucre. Historically, and, and not so much today, but historically, there have been, uh, especially when uh, pastoral salaries were paid by the state, and it was a kind of a cush government job or a government-supported job, there were men who were unbelievers who went into the ministry because it was a decent occupation. It was a decent trade. It was easier than blacksmithing. It was easier than digging dishes. So they thought. And so Peter says, this is not the way that the ministry ought to be urged upon people, either not under guilt, but also not as a means of gain. Not people who look at this and say, I, I, could, I can make an easy living doing this. That's what I ought to do. But there's another one. Look at verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You know, you hate to say it, but you have to acknowledge this. There are men who get into the pastoral ministry because they like to be in charge. They like to be able to rule over other people. And even lord over their consciences. It's the same sin that provoked Satan to say, I will be like the Most High. I will be God-like. I will, I will be the one they come to, and I, and I can dispense advice and give counsel and do all these kinds of things, and I, and I will have that kind of authority and power. Well, the problem there is manifold, including Jesus rebuking his disciples and says, this is the way the Gentiles operate. They seek to lord it over those in your charge. He said, it's not like that among you. If you want to be first, you have to, first, you have to be last. If you want to be exalted, the first thing you have to do is be the servant of all. That even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, Peter's not a pragmatist, but he is practical. I mean, he's been around by this point long enough to see how these things can go wrong. And that there are sometimes godly men who are, whose motives are, are good and pure, as much as we are able to have good and pure motives, but they're driven by a sense of, of guilt, sense of responsibility. Others are not so guiltless. They're thinking this is, this is a means of gain, either financial or otherwise. There are still others that look for this pastoral, the office of pastoral ministry as a way to govern and rule other people, and they just kind of just like that. Um, they really enjoy having others sort of salute in that way. So God is the source of this inward call. We go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says this, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. When Paul uses this word aspire, he's using it to supplement, to augment, to reinforce the word desire. But those words are not exactly the same. You and I might desire a number of things. I might tell you, I desire to be a helicopter pilot. I just love the idea 
of being able to fly a chopper that can go anywhere, take off and land and go into tight plane, fly over canyons and mountains. And I, 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 I desire to do that. But do I aspire to it? Aspiring means I've taken tangible steps in that direction. And I've only been in a helicopter once in my entire life for about 30 minutes. It's a tourist thing. You fly over the volcano. It was, it was wonderful. I thought, this is great. I like this. But I've never aspired in that way. In, in an abstract sense, I would like to do that. But in a tangible sense, I've never taken a step. I've never taken a class. I've never talked to a helicopter pilot and thinking, what, what do you need to do to get into this vocation? I've never taken any of those tangible steps. So desire, all by itself, is, is not the defining factor. What's being done about it? So there are men who say, I would love to be a pastor. Okay? What are you reading? Oh, I don't, I'm not much of a reader. What, what, are, you, what are you studying? How are you being instructed? How are you discipling people right now? Well, I mean, I'm, I'll do that when I'm in office. Well, that's, that's not an aspiration. That might be some sort of, of general sense of desire. But, but the kind of, of, when Paul uses these words together, aspire and desire, it's, it's a desire that has to have feet. It's a desire that has to have a tangible expression. So as a church, and we'll think about this more next week, in terms of the external call, when a church begins to evaluate a man, a church should have the attitude as, who's already doing these kinds of things? Who's already demonstrating this kind of character? Who's already demonstrating the kinds of gifts and competence that's necessary? Who is already demonstrating they have a grasp on the scriptures in such a way that they can be a genuine help to others in understanding it? This is not a wait-and-see or a hope-and-pray endeavor. Is there a tangible expression of this? Are there men who are willing to do the work and the sacrifice now, even before they're ordained to the office? Not every man desires the task and responsibility leading to God's people, or of leading God's people, and even those who do desire that, may not, or who are called, I should say it this way, though, even those who are, are genuinely called may not immediately desire it. Can you think of examples from the scriptures of men that God called who were not necessarily eager on day one? Think about Moses. Here's Moses. You're going to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses... Moses had a list of excuses the length of your arm, right? I don't talk too good. They won't listen to me. I mean, who am I? Who is sufficient for these things? And all those were true statements to a degree. The desire came later. God calls, and it's God who produces that desire. I think about Gideon. I mean, Gideon's in a hole in the ground, threshing wheat because he was afraid to be above ground because of the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord comes, greetings, mighty warrior. He's looking around, who are you talking to? It can't be talking to me. And God called him to deliver his people. And yet Gideon was reluctant. Jeremiah. There were others. We could think of other examples that initially. So as we meditate upon the text, 
to, to my brothers, I want to say, this is something that the Lord must cultivate in you. You can't produce this and manufacture this on your own. But also, you may, in your own mind, have a list of Moses-like excuses and say to yourself, who is sufficient for these things? I could never do that. And in your own strength, you're right. You couldn't. I certainly could not. I cannot. But the Lord will produce in us not only the desire, but the ability to do that which he's called us to do. But this desire doesn't mean an abandonment of reason. It doesn't mean doesn't mean unrestrained impulse. Kind of give you a negative example. My, I have two literally bird-brained dogs. They're bird dogs. And that's probably unkind to birds to call them bird-brained. But in a number of occasions when we've had a rat under the shed, or even worse, a rat getting under the hood of the car, and these dogs show no reason, no sound judgment, no restraint whatsoever, will call up and scratch up anything and everything to try to get to this, to fulfill this desire. I smell a rat, I want the rat. And there is there's a loss of sobriety. Well, this ought not to be the case with men who say, I'm called to the ministry. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to leave everything and go pursue this. Well, where's the sobriety in that? Where is the obeying of the Lord Jesus to count the cost? before one builds a tower, to consider, to seek wise counsel, to consider godly examples. But at the same time, desire does mean a bona fide willingness and even an eagerness to do this good work. Listen to Al Mohler. Albert Mohler said, One key issue here is a common misunderstanding about the will of God. Some models of evangelical piety imply that God's will is something difficult for us to accept. We sometimes confuse this further by talking about surrendering to the will of God. As Paul makes clear in Romans 12, 2, the will of God is good, it's worthy of eager acceptance, and it's perfect. Those called by God to preach will be given a desire to preach, as well as the gifts of preaching. Beyond this the God-called preacher will feel the same compulsion as the great apostle who wrote, Woe to me if I preach not this gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's a, a bona fide desire. And so the one who thinks in terms of, well, I've got to surrender to this. I don't really want it. But God has chased me like the hound of heaven, and he's caught me, and I can't not do this. Well, that's kind of what Peter was talking about, not under compulsion. There's a willingness to serve in these ways. So the source of the inward call of God is God himself. The effect, the result of that call, of that inward call, is a desire to labor as an under-shepherd of God's people. It's a genuine desire. It's a bona fide desire. It's a sustained desire. Brothers, If you sense God stirring you, if you find that increasingly, I just really enjoy digging into God's Word. I enjoy the deep study. I enjoy, you know, as I'm reading, I just naturally think in terms of how could I outline this? What what, what are the main ideas here? What are the main points? If you find yourself more and more desiring to to then teach that to others, 
and, and to expound the Word of God and make it clear to others, I encourage you to consider prayerfully, carefully, whether the Lord may, today or at another time, call you to this good work, to this noble task. You may think very little right now of your own gifting at this stage. That's what we call normal. You may think very little of of your own capacity to do this. But don't be immediately discouraged by that. Uh, We will see together that, that God equips those whom he calls. And again, think Moses, think Gideon, think Jeremiah and others who, when the first call first came, they did not immediately think, oh yeah, I'm all about this. So I encourage you to immerse yourselves in these pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. That's not the only place you should study, but if, if these things are stirring in you, a sense of, immerse yourself in them. Read them over and over and over again. Read them in one sitting. Don't break it up in chapters. Read first, sit down and read 1 Timothy as one letter. Get your spiral notebook, your legal tablet, a pen and paper, and outline it as you go. Make notes. Study it deeply. Outline the whole book. Then go back and outline the individual uh, chapters and passages. Follow Paul's train of thought. Notice the things that he repeats. Notice the things that, that he says, this is what's the priority for both the minister and for the church of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's, this is the, this is the pastoral instruction manual in the scriptures. Again, it's not comprehensive. It's not everything we need to know. But First and Second Timothy and Titus are the bedrock, the foundational principles. We're going to see, we saw this last week with respect to deacons, but chapter 3 ends with this statement that Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but if I'm delayed, I write these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's urgent. It's necessary that everyone in the church and and ministers of the gospel in particular know how the church ought to be ordered, how men ought to conduct themselves, and to get more uh, pointed, those who are called to such a function, what is their role? What does this look like? And and may God be pleased through his word, and particularly first and second Timothy and Titus, and the spirit of God working in us, to instruct you. It will be a fruitful labor, even if you come to, you, you spend years doing this, you spend months doing this, and the end, you know, I don't think God has called me to this. Great, great. You will be a more profitable church member, having studied deeply those things. But for everyone in the church, are we willing to pray to this end? Our Lord Jesus commanded us, didn't he? Pray that the God of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, would raise up workers for the harvest. Do we pray in that way? Do we pray that God would would call men among us? Do we look into our own homes, around our dinner tables, in our living rooms, and say, I pray that the Lord may call one of my own sons to this ministry? Do we pray that way as a church? Do we long for that? Do we want to see the kingdom of Christ continue to advance because we believe he, he desires that all men be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. And instrumentally, this is one of the means by which God accomplishes and makes that desire known in the world. Are you willing 
For those who do think, I, I do sense a, a stirring within me. Are you willing now to serve in any way you have an opportunity? Not only in those public ways, but in any way that's necessary. Not just those public or visible roles, but are you willing to, to follow through? Are you willing to keep your word? Are you willing to demonstrate the heart of a servant right now, in this present hour, in this present season? And to say, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to, to encourage and exhort others to do likewise. I'm willing patiently uh, to persevere in those things, even if no one outside the Lord and my own wife know I've done this. Young men, as I think about these pastoral epistles, I think this should be required study. Uh, homeschool moms and dads, make this required study in your homes. The pastoral epistles. Again, worst case is they become really good church members because they understand God's priorities for his church. But who knows how the Lord may use these things to stir in the heart of a young man as he has to take pen in hand or pencil in hand and outline and think about and ask her, you know, come up with study questions, those kinds of things. The young men, this ought to be a required study for you. And as you make your plans for your future, as you contemplate your own vocations, and you think about what God would, would have you to do uh, to serve him, do all things to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink, do everything for the glory of God, don't fail to consider whether God may use you in this particular service of his church. Um, it, it is not at all a universal reality. It is not at all a, a, that God calls all men or even the majority of men to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is, there is no defect, no shame, no uh, deficiency in any man who says, I, I, I don't have this desire. I, I don't believe God has called me to this. That, that, brother, bless you. That is, that is great. There's nothing deficient. Sometimes we have a, a wrong understanding of vocation that says, well, if I'm a pastor, that would be a more holy work. That would be a more uh, kingdom kind of work than working in, in a trade or some other vocation. And that's, that's not a biblical idea. Uh, we don't get that from the scriptures. Uh, Roman Catholicism helped introduce that error that if you, were a, if you really want to be holy and serve, you have to be a, a monk or a priest or a nun or some such thing in order to really serve God. That isn't a biblical notion. So again, there's one, yet another one I left off earlier uh, of a, a potential pitfall for someone desiring the office wrongly. There's, the, there's an honest zeal. A love for the Lord. I, w I really want to serve Him. I want to dedicate my life to Christ. And you think, well, the only way I can really do that, really be sold out for Christ, I got to go to mission field. That's like tier one, right? Foreign mission field. Maybe way down number two, I can be a pastor. That's that's the way I really prove that I love the Lord. Well, that's that's not biblical kind of thinking. But young men, even with that said. Don't neglect in your own thoughts, your own preparations, your own planning for your future, the possibility that perhaps the Lord would use you in this way. Uh, study the scriptures. Study particularly the pastoral epistles. Read theological books. Feed your mind with these things. 
parents? Are we willing to exhort and encourage our kids in those ways? And I'll, I'll spend got more to say about that. I'll, I'll hold off for next time as we think about the outward call and the role of the body of Christ in um, helping to discern and affirm uh, the calling of God upon men for the gospel ministry. We'll close there. I'll reserve the remainder for next week. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your providential rule over all things, that you govern everything by the immutable, infallible, perfect counsel of your own will. And we thank you that in your, your wisdom, throughout redemptive history, you have called men to represent you, to speak your word uh, to others on your behalf. I pray that among us, you would be pleased to raise up other workers for this harvest. I pray that you will be pleased uh, to continue uh, the ministry of this local body for a hundred years from now. I pray that you will raise up men among us who are eager, who are willing, who desire, who aspire to this good work. And I pray for all of our church members that we would encourage such men, that we would pray for them, that we would delight in seeing those gifts and graces emerge among us, that we would be eager, uh, have a shared eagerness to see the cause of Christ, the kingdom of Christ advance as his name is proclaimed, as his covenant promises and blessings are proclaimed to sinful men and women. Uh, we pray that your desire to see all men saved and come to the knowledge of the, tr of the truth would, would take on practical expression in the life of this church body. We thank you and we love you in Christ. Amen.